Chapter 6, Part 8 of The American Language. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The American Language by H. L. Mencken. Chapter 6, The Common Speech, Part 8, Pronunciation. Before anything approaching a thorough and profitable study of the sounds of the American common speech is possible, there must be a careful assembling of the materials, and this, unfortunately, still awaits a philologist of sufficient enterprise and equipment. Dr. William A. Reed, of the State University of Louisiana, has made some excellent examinations of vowel and consonant sounds in the South. Dr. Louise Pound has done capital work of the same sort in the Middle West, and there have been other regional studies of merit. But most of these become misleading by reason of their lack of scope. Forms practically universal in the nation are discussed as dialectical variations. This is the central defect in the work of the American Dialect Society, otherwise very industrious and meritorious. It is essaying to study localisms before having first platted the characteristics of the general speech. The dictionaries of Americanisms deal with pronunciation only casually, and often very inaccurately. The remaining literature is meager and unsatisfactory. Until the matter is gone into at length, it will be impossible to discuss any phase of it with exactness. No single investigator can examine the speech of the whole country. For that business, a pooling of forces is necessary. But meanwhile, it may be of interest to set forth a few provisional ideas. At the start, two streams of influence upon American pronunciation may be noted. The one, an inheritance from the English of the colonists, and the other, arising spontaneously within the country, and apparently much colored by immigration. The first influence, it goes without saying, is gradually dying out. Consider, for example, the pronunciation of the diphthong oi. In Middle English, it was as in boy, but during the early modern English period, it was assimilated with that of the i in wine, and this usage prevailed at the time of the settlement of America. The colonists thus brought it with them, and at the same time it lodged in Ireland, where it still prevails. But in England, during the pedantic 18th century, this I sound was displaced by the original OI sound, not by historical research, but by mere deduction from the spelling, and the new pronunciation soon extended to the polite speech of America. In the common speech, however, the I sound persisted, and down to the time of the Civil War, it was constantly heard in such words as boil, hoist, oil, join, poison, and royal, which thus became bile, heist, isle, jine, pison, and rile. Since then, the schoolmarm has combated it with such vigor that it has begun to disappear, and such forms as pison, 
jine, bile, and isle are now very seldom heard, save as dialectic variations. But in certain other words, perhaps supported by Irish influence, the I sound still persists. Chief among them are hoist and royal. An unlearned American, wishing to say that he was enraged, never says that he was roiled, but always that he was riled. Desiring to examine the hoof of his horse, he never orders the animal to hoist, but always to heist. In the form of booze heister, the latter is almost in good usage. I have seen booze heister thus spelled, and obviously to be thus pronounced, in an editorial article in the American issue, organ of the Anti-Saloon League of America. Various similar misplaced vowels were brought from England by the colonists, and have persisted in America, while dying out of good England usage. There is, for example, short I in place of long E, as in critter for creature. Critter is common to almost all the dialects of English, but American has embedded the vowel in a word that is met with nowhere else, and has thus become characteristic to it, crick for creek. Nor does any other dialect make such extensive use of slick for sleek. Again, there is the substitution of the flat A for the broad A in sauce. England has gone back to the broad A, but in America the flat A persists, and many Americans who use sassy every day would scarcely recognize saucy if they heard it. Yet again, there is quite. Originally, the English pronounced it quite, but now they pronounce the diphthong as in doily. In the United States, the quate pronunciation remains. Finally, there is deaf. Its proper pronunciation in the England that the colonists left was deaf, but it now rhymes with Jeff. That new pronunciation has been adopted by polite American, despite the protests of Noah Webster, but in the common speech the word is still always deaf. However, a good many of the vowels of the early days have succumbed to pedagogy. The American proletarian may still use skier for scare, but in most of the other words of that class he now uses the vowel approved by correct English usage. Thus, he seldom permits himself such old forms as dream for drain, keer for care, skears for scarce, or even cheer for chair. The Irish influence supported them for a while, but now they are fast going out. So too are kiver for cover, crap for crop, and chist for chest. But kittle for kettle still shows a certain vitality. Wrench is still used in place of rinse, and squinch in place of squint, and a flat A continues to displace various E sounds in such words as rare for rear, example as a horse, and 
wrestle for wrestle. Contrarywise, e displaces a in catch and radish, which are commonly pronounced catch and reddish. This e sound was once accepted in standard English. When it got into spoken American, it was perfectly sound. One still hears it from the most pedantic lips in any. There are also certain other ancients that show equally unbroken vitality among us. For example, stomp for stamp, snoot for snout, gardeen for guardian, and champion for champion. But all these vowels, whether approved or disapproved, have been under the pressure, for the past century, of a movement toward a general vowel neutralization, and in the long run it promises to dispose of many of them. The same movement also affects standard English, as appears by Robert Bridges's tract on the present state of English pronunciation. But I believe that it is stronger in America, and will go farther, at least with the common speech, if only because of our unparalleled immigration. Standard English has 19 separate vowel sounds. No other living tongue of Europe, save Portuguese, has so many. Most of the others have a good many less. Modern Greek has but five. The immigrant, facing all these vowels, finds some of them quite impossible. The Russian Jew, as we have seen, cannot manage er. As a result, he tends to employ a neutralized vowel in all the situations which present difficulties, and this neutralized vowel, supported by the slipshod speech habits of the native proletariat, makes steady progress. It appears in many of the forms that we have been examining, in the final A of woulda, vaguely before the N in thisn and often, in place of the original D in used to, and in the common pronunciation of such words as been, come, and have, particularly when they are sacrificed to sentence exigencies as in I've been thinking, Kimir, and he would have saw you. Here we are upon a wearing down process that shows many other symptoms. One finds not only vowels disorganized, but also consonants. Some are displaced by other consonants, measurably more facile. Others are dropped altogether. D becomes T, as in holt, or is dropped, as in toll. Handkerchief, brand new, and fine, for find. In ast, for ask, T replaces K. When the same word is used in place of asked, as often happens. Example, in I asked him his name, it shoulders out ked. It is itself lopped off in bankrupt, quantity, crep, slep, wep, kep, grismill, and less, let's, let us, and is replaced by d in kindergarten and pardoner. L disappears, as in already and gentleman. 
s becomes ch, as in pinchers. The same ch replaces c, as in pitcher, for picture, and t, as in amateur. G disappears from the ends of words, and sometimes, too, in the middle, as in strength and recognize. R, though it is better preserved in American than in English, is also under pressure, as appears by bust, stuck on for struck on, cuss for curse, yesterday, sarsaparilla, partridge, cartridge, they is for there is, and sad day for Saturday. An excrescent T survives in a number of words, example, onced, twiced, clust, wished, for wish, and chanced. It is an heirloom from the English of two centuries ago. So is the final H in height. An excrescent B, as in chimbly and family, seems to be native. Whole syllables are dropped out of words, paralleling the English butchery of extraordinary, for example, in boundary, history, library, and probably. Ordinary, like extraordinary, is commonly enunciated clearly, but it has bred a degenerated form, Honry or honorary differentiated in meaning. Consonants are misplaced by metathesis, as in perspiration, hundred, brethren, children, introduce, apern, calvary, government, modern, and worsted for worsted. O is changed to er, as in feller, swaller, yeller, beller, umbrella, and holler. I-C-E is changed to E-R-S, in jaunders. Words are given new syllables, as in elum, mischievous, and municipial. In the complete sentence, Assimilation makes this disorganization much more obvious. Mearns, in a brief article, gives many examples of the extent to which it is carried. He hears, Was he say? For what does he say? Where's he? For where is he? Asked her in. For ask her in. It am out. For hit them out. Sry for that is right, and kmir, for come here. He believes that T is gradually succumbing to D, and cites ass better, for that's better. When you get din, for when did you get in, and sit up, for sit up. One hears countless other such decayed forms on the street every day. Have to is almost invariably made hafta, with the neutral vowel where I have put the second a. Let's, already noticed, is less. The neutral vowel replaces the oo of good 
in goodbye. What did you say reduces itself to was they? Maybe is maybe. Perhaps is perhaps. So long is slong. Excuse me is excuse me. The common salutation, how are you, is so dismembered that it finally emerges as a word almost indistinguishable from high. Here there is room for inquiry, and that inquiry deserves the best effort of American phonologists, for the language is undergoing rapid changes under their very eyes, or perhaps more accurately, under their very ears, and a study of those changes should yield a great deal of interesting matter. How did the word stint on American lips first convert itself into stent and then into stunt? By what process was balk changed into buck? Both stunt and buck are among the commonest words in the everyday American vocabulary, and yet no one so far has investigated them scientifically. A byway that is yet to be so much as entered is that of naturalized loan words in the common speech. A very characteristic word of that sort is sachet. Its relationship to the French chasse seems to be plain, and yet it has acquired meanings in American that differ very widely from the meaning of chasse. How widely it is dispersed may be seen by the fact that it is reported in popular use as a verb signifying to prance or to walk consciously in southeastern Missouri, Nebraska, northwestern Arkansas, eastern Alabama, and western Indiana, and with slightly different meaning on Cape Cod. The travels of café in America would repay investigation, particularly its variations in pronunciation. I believe that it is fast becoming cafe, plaza, boulevard, vaudeville, menu, and rathskeller have entered into the common speech of the land and are pronounced as American words. Such words, when they come in verbally by actual contact with immigrants, commonly retain some measure of their correct native pronunciation. Spiel, kosher, ganoff, and matzah are examples. Their vowels remain un-American. But words that come in visually, say through street signs and the newspapers, are immediately overhauled and have thoroughly Americanized vowels and consonants thereafter. School teachers have been trying to establish various pseudo-French pronunciations of vase for 50 years past, but it still rhymes with face in the Vulgate. Vaudeville is vaudeville. Boulevard has a hard D at the end. Plaza has two flat A's. The first syllable of menu rhymes with B. The first of Rathskeller with cats. Fiancé is fiancé. Nay rhymes with C. Décolleté is décolleté. Hofbrau is Hofbrau. The German W 
has lost its V sound and becomes an American W. I have in my day heard protege for protégé, habitu for habitué, connoisseur for connoisseur, scherzo for scherzo, premier for premier, etude for étude, and prelude for prelude. Divorcé is divorcy and has all the rakishness of the adjectives in y. The first syllable of mayonnaise rhymes with hay. Crème de menthe is cream de mint. Schweitzer is Schweitzer. Rochefort is Roquefort. I have heard debut with the last syllable rhyming with nut. I have heard minute for minuet. I have heard to chef d'oeuvre for chef d'oeuvre. And who doesn't remember? As I walked along the boys' boulang with an independent air. And say au revoir, but not goodbye. Charles James Fox, it is said, called the red wine of France bore docks to the end of his days. He had an American heart. His great speeches for the revolting colonies were more than mere oratory. End of chapter 6, part 8. Recording by Linda Johnson.